If you would at this time, take out your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to take one from the seats in front of you. Um, But I would ask you to take out your Bible and to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Book of Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the opening uh, 11 chapters of the Bible. Uh, Last Sunday we read of the devastating, the tragic fall of man. And today we come now to God's judgments on man uh, for our sinful rebellion against him in the garden. Uh, If you're physically able, uh, I would encourage you and invite you to stand with me as we read together this portion uh, from the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You may be seated. At this moment, the glorious Garden of Eden is suddenly transformed into a courtroom. God appears as the righteous judge, and before Him now are three criminals. There is the serpent... Satan himself. There is Eve. And there is Adam. And each of these persons must now listen to God as He issues to them their just punishment. And I would ask you to remember that what we have here is a foreshadowing of another day. A day of judgment that has not yet come, but is to come. I would ask you to remember, friends, that this is a foreshadowing of the day when we will stand before God and give an account. I know that there are many who deny that this day is coming. But in the depths of our hearts, in the back recesses of our consciences, we know that ultimately we are accountable to someone We sense that there is a universal law. 
Certain things are just plain wrong. And we know that. And this means that there's some sort of intrinsic, universal law to this world. And if there's a law, who gave that law? It must be the Creator. And if He has given a law, then surely He will hold us accountable for whether we have kept it or not. The covenant of works, what God gave to Adam, has been written into our own nature as human beings. The covenant that God made that said if we trust and obey Him, we would be blessed and enjoy paradise forever, but that if we chose to disobey Him, we would result in death and judgment. That is written into the very fabric of humanity, and it is still true. So when you commit that act of sexual immorality, or when you have that flash of hatred towards someone come up in your heart, or when you tell that lie in order to cover your own skin, and suddenly you have that, that feeling of guilt, that pang of guilt that suddenly happens in your soul. Suddenly you have this feeling of dirtiness about what you have just done. That guiltiness does not just come out of nowhere. Your guilt comes from a deep understanding that you have just transgressed something important. An invisible law. A covenant that was made between God and man. Now maybe you say, Justin, my feelings of guilt, when I commit certain sins, I think is just a result of all of this religious mumbo-jumbo. Maybe if people hadn't tried to tell me since I was a kid that there's some God up there and that there's sin and that there's heaven and hell, maybe if I hadn't grown up with all that, I could just live free and I wouldn't have this guilt. But friend, if that's what you really think, if you think God is just mumbo-jumbo, if you think He is sheer fiction, you don't have any reason to feel guilty at all. For you will stand before no one. At least that's what you think. You will answer to no God. And therefore no one can judge you because no other person has the right to impose their idea of right and wrong onto you. If you really believe that God is just some made-up thing, everything is permissible for you. You can do as you please. There is no right and wrong. you know that isn't true. Everything in your heart tells you that is not true. Those feelings of guilt that come up after you commit certain sins are evidence of the fact that deep down you do know there's a holy God and you do know that you have wronged Him. Now maybe your heart and conscience doesn't do this anymore like it used to. Maybe your conscience and your heart have become hardened and deadened so that very seldom do you have those feelings of guilt. The Bible says that that's because the soul of man, the conscience of man, seeks to suppress the truth about God. We seek to, to put out of our hearts, out of our minds, the truth about a coming day of judgment. Because that takes all the fun out of sin. 
If there's a day of judgment coming, I can't enjoy living my life the way I want to live it, however I want to live it. Loses all the pleasure of indulging in my life, those things that I want to indulge in. And so our consciences seek to suppress this truth. If, if we could, sinful man would just, would just rip this sense out of our very souls. But even if you could somehow succeed in ripping the truth of a coming day of judgment out of your soul, it would still be here in black and white in the very Word of God, which many of you are holding in your hand right now. It's there. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And you can rip it out of the page of the Bible in your hands, and it will still be in the pages of Bibles throughout the world. It is there, and judgment is coming, and God has revealed it to you, both in your soul and in the Bible, and even with reason. And therefore, you are without excuse if you pretend that it isn't true. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus said, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to say that Jesus was a liar? Are you going to say he was a lunatic? Or are you going to say that he's worth listening to? What position do you take on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, one of the ways that we come to believe that the Bible is the true Word of God is something happens to us as we're reading it. As we read in the Bible about a holy God and a day of judgment and right and wrong and heaven and hell, something in our soul takes place. The Holy Spirit pulls out of our soul what our soul has been trying to suppress. So that as we read the Bible, we say, yes, deep down I've always sensed that this was true. Yes, deep down I've always known that there was a holy God whom I must answer, and now here it is. God has used this book to awaken in me what I had been trying to put away from me all these years. The day of judgment is coming. Reason testifies to it. Your conscience testifies to it. The Bible testifies to it. In the midst of all of these witnesses testifying to you of this day, will you still deny it? Our only hope is Jesus. Trying to fix yourself and to get your life together now won't work because you've already committed crimes that must be judged. And these crimes that you and I have committed are against an infinitely good and valuable God. You have not offended a mere peasant. You have offended the King of Kings. And His very station and position demand that your punishment be eternal. So go to Christ. He bore the hell your sins deserved on the cross if you believe. God, despite His just abhorrence of your sin, has loved you, and He does love you, and He is loving you at this very moment. 
He is loving you enough to bring you to this place at this time where you can hear this message and hear the free offer of the Gospel, the free offer of His Son as your Savior made to you. There's no reason for you to perish unless you willfully choose to. Rather hate your sin. Realize that the God you have spurned is good and wise and cast yourself on Jesus as your only hope to have God again as your Father and friend. Christ will reconcile you to God. You will have peace with Him. Joyful peace. If you refuse, you will be eternally and justly punished forever in a literal, physical hell. This is God's righteous will. It is good. You may not sense that now. One day you will see that it is, it is good. But I pray that you will trust Christ before that day comes. Our focus this morning is verses 14 and 15. God's judgment on the serpent. This is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. It is the first time that the gospel is preached. The fall has just occurred, and already, even as God condemns Satan, God responds in loving mercy to human beings, bringing them a promise, the gospel. I want to take it just line by line, bit by bit. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. We've seen what the serpent has done in tempting Eve, deceiving her, drawing her into his web of lies, and now God curses the serpent above all other livestock and beasts. So far, we've seen in our study of Genesis, God issue blessings. But this is the first time we ever see God issue a curse. He was brought to this. God does not delight in curses. He delights in blessings, but He is holy. And He does delight in justice, just as you and I should. And so now He pronounces this curse on the serpent. What is a curse? It's the opposite of a blessing. We've seen earlier that a blessing from God is His gift of fruitfulness whether it's spiritual fruitfulness, material fruitfulness, physical fruitfulness, as in having children. All of these are examples of being blessed by God. But a curse does just the opposite. It prevents fruitfulness. It hinders fruitfulness. The plans of Satan will not prosper. The plans of Satan will not come to the end that that wicked creature longs for it to come to. Death, eternal death, is Satan's judgment. How does this curse affect the serpent, the creature that Satan used in his tempting of Eve? God says to that animal, on your belly you shall go. Before this moment, the serpent was not a snake. It was some other kind of creature, a a beast of the field. But at this moment, God transforms this creature into a, a snake as we know them. And each and every time we encounter a snake, we saw what, three earlier this week, Kyle? Each and every time we encounter a snake, we are to be reminded of this incident. 
and how sin took what was once a very uh, unique animal and has lessened it and demeaned it and made it an enemy of humans and even the rest of the animal kingdom. And sin does the same things to us. It demeans us. It lessens us from the glory of who we were created to be. And each and every time we see a snake, we are to be reminded how Satan seeks to use us just as he used that serpent to bring others down and to bring harm to others. God says to the serpent, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now snakes don't eat dust. People back then knew that just as well as we know it now. Rather, the point of this phrase is that Eating dust is a picture of humiliation and defeat. It is a picture that you have been conquered. For example, Psalm 72, in the middle of a prayer for the king of Israel, we read this. May he, the king of of Israel, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow to him and his enemies lick the dust. Was the psalmist really asking that the enemies of the king get on their knees and eat dust? Lick dust? No. His point is, may the enemies of the king of Israel be defeated. May they be humbled before him. I'm going to use Brad as an illustration here if I can. Let's say you went to play tennis against Brad. And as you're walking out onto the court... Brad just turns and with a glimmer in his eye, he smiles at you and says, get ready to eat dust. What does he mean by that? He means you're about to be defeated. He means you're about to be whipped. You're about to be humiliated. Well, that is the nature of what God is saying here. To the creature, the serpent, this meant that he would have a low place in the animal kingdom. He would be hated by all creatures and humans as well. But ultimately, this curse is for Satan. It is God's declaration to Satan. Satan, you're about to be whipped. Satan, you're going to be humiliated. Satan, you're going to be defeated. You will not prevail. Now come to verse 15. And thank God for verse 15. This has been called the mother promise, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel word in Scripture. At a superficial level, this promise in verse 15 is merely that men and snake will be enemies and will cause harm to one another, and that is true. There does seem to be bound up in the heart of man a unique hatred for snakes, and snakes don't particularly seem to like us either. But that enmity between snakes and human beings is meant to point to something much deeper and much more significant. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's what he says to the serpent. Satan, you thought you had won the woman over. And yes, Eve has aligned with you. Eve has joined in your rebellion against God. But Satan, Eve will not stay at peace with you. She will not stay at war with God. No, God is going to intervene. Friends, what we have here is the promise of regeneration, the promise of the new birth. This is God saying to the serpent that though Eve's heart has become wicked and rebellious, God will not allow her to continue this way. 
He is going to rescue Eve by changing her heart so that her peace with the serpent will come to an end and she will once again be aligned with God and at enmity with the serpent. Notice the sovereign work of God in Eve's salvation. I will put. God isn't simply going to try and persuade Eve to repent and trust Him. God isn't simply going to try and reason with Eve about how evil the serpent is and why she should love her Creator instead. No. Unlike Satan, God has wondrous power over the human heart to turn it whichever way He pleases. I will put, He says. It is His initiative, His work, and once He has reached in and changed Eve's heart, she will give glory to Him forever for being so merciful to her who had just been so wretched towards him. God, had God not sovereignly stepped in and changed Eve's heart, she would have been lost forever. Wait a minute. Slow down, Justin. What is all this talk about God putting enmity between Eve and the serpents? God can't do that. He can't just reach in and change Eve's heart, causing her to hate Satan and love him. It isn't right. Doesn't God have respect for Eve's free will? Shouldn't he simply call on her to to change? Shouldn't he plead with her and persuade with her and reason with her and then just hope for the best? No. Because you see, Eve's will is not free at all. It was free before she sinned, but not anymore. By aligning herself with Satan, Eve's will has become bound. Isn't that what the Scriptures say? Remember, the Bible says that at the fall, we didn't just stumble and scrape our knee. We broke our neck. We died spiritually. There is no little glimmer of spiritual goodness still in Eve that can hear God's call and inside of herself she will find the the will and the faith to turn. No, she is spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life there. She has the ability to come to God in just as much the amount of way that Lazarus had the ability to get up from the dead on his own. If God doesn't reach in and put the enmity there, it will not happen. And so it is with us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 6, 65. God must take the initiative and God must save. If he waits for Eve to hate the serpent on her own and to come back to him on her own free will, she will never be saved. And she has no hope. So what a promise. God is going to step in and save this child who has just treated him so wickedly. He is going to save Eve because he loves her, but not just her. Because look at the next line. Look at the next line. And between your offspring and her offspring. Serpent, I am going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, who are these two offsprings, these two seeds? seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Biologically, the snake's offspring is snakes. And biologically, the woman's offspring is other human beings. We, we get that, but this, this text is not about that. It's about something much more important, something spiritual. 
Who is the offspring of the serpent? Who are the children of the serpent? It is those who share the characteristics of their parent. The offspring of the serpent are those people who, like Satan, live in rebellion against God. They have aligned themselves with Satan and they will be thrown into the hell that was created to punish Satan. Friends, I want you to brace yourself for what I am about to say. You and I and every other human being by nature are the offspring of the serpent. Wait, how can that be? Eve was saved. She was regenerated. She was born again. Eve believed the promise that we're about to see in a few moments. Eve was a Christian and is now in heaven with God. But that is not the way we are born. That is not the nature we inherit. The nature we inherit at birth is the nature of the serpent, the nature of Satan, wanting our own selfish way, serving our own selfish interests, despising God's good commands. Remember what Jesus told that group of Jews in John 8 who simply would not believe in Him. He said, quote, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. John said in 1 John 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning. From the beginning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, you should know this by heart by now. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Natural man has sided with God. We have joined the wicked rebellion. We are the seed, the offspring of the serpent. But then who are Eve's offspring? Eve's offspring are the people of God. Those who, like Eve, are transformed, taken out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of light. Those who receive new hearts. Those who are born again. You see, all of humanity can be split into these two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is wicked mankind. The seed of the woman is God's people. Those few that are saved by grace and walk the narrow path. And this truth will become so important over the next few chapters of Genesis as we see these two seeds. We will see the ungodly line of Cain. We will see the godly line of Seth. The hostility, the enmity between the offspring of the serpent and God's people will begin when unrighteous Cain kills righteous Abel. And that hostility that begins there will continue to be seen throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament and into this very day and throughout the world until Jesus comes back. There is enmity between the church and the world. Go home, read Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. All of those chapters about how the church of Jesus Christ can expect suffering and persecution and hatred from the ungodly world around them until Christ returns. There is enmity between the world and the church. Oh, we are to love our enemies. 
There is enmity between us and them and that they hate us. And we hate their sin. But then we come to this wonderful statement. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Suddenly the offspring of the woman is not just the church, the people of God, but it is the head of them. He, a singular person, He, serpent, shall bruise your head. He, a serpent slayer, a Messiah, a Messiah, Jesus. We have here the promise that Christ will bruise the head of Satan and that Satan will bruise the heel of Christ. What we have here is the foretelling of two future events which in the New Testament we discover are in fact one event because it was when Satan bruised our Savior at the cross that ultimately our Savior crushed the head of the serpent. He won the victory and crushed the devil with a fatal blow. I only have about two or three pages of my sermon left. The sermon, I mean, this, this uh, service may go a little long because of the Lord's Supper. I hope you're okay with that. I hope you are. But I want to explain how Jesus crushed the serpent. I preached on this uh, last fall at the Surveying the Wondrous Cross Conference. Some of you may remember this. Uh, I hope you do. But I want you to see and rejoice in how Christ has won the victory over Satan. To answer that question, you need to understand how it is that Satan seeks to destroy you. Do you know Satan's plan to destroy you? Do you know what his plan is? Do you know what his plan is to frustrate the plans of God to save us? The devil uses all of the weapons in his arsenal. Everything he can use to persuade us, to entice us, to allure us into sin. Why? Why does Satan want us to sin so badly? So that he can accuse us before God and demand that God condemn us. Satan's chief weapon is the law of God. It's his appeal to God's justice. You see, Satan is not more powerful than God. So if God says, I'm going to save these people, and Satan says, no, you're not, and it comes to a battle of might, God's going to win every time. And Satan knows that. So Satan is not trying to defeat God's plans through might. No, he's more conniving than that. He's more slick. His goal is to lead us into sin so that God cannot save us without ceasing to be God. Imagine standing before God. Imagine that to your great delight, you hear God's good intention to bless you. He says to you, child, you are mine and I will love you forever. I will bless you with an ocean of blessings like you have never imagined. My peace will fill your heart. My joy will flow into you and overflow into praise forever. You are my treasured possession I will care for you. I will protect you. I will dwell with you forever. No more sickness. No more suffering. No more pain. No more death shall you experience. I give you paradise. I give you myself. And you hear that and your heart fills with joy. And all of a sudden, here is Satan. 
No, he says. And he wags his finger at God and he says, you cannot bless this person. You must now be eternally separated from all of these people you love, God. You can't bless them. You cannot bring them into your presence or treat them favorably. They are criminals. You must condemn them. God, you are not allowed to love them. Your holiness demands it. You must hate them. Your justice cries out for righteousness. If you welcome these sinful rebels into paradise and make them your children, you are a wicked God, an unholy God, a God to be despised. You are, in fact, no God at all. And you know what? He's right. Holding up our sins before God, Satan gleefully believes he is trapped. God's purposes have failed. He must condemn His people. And then comes Jesus Christ. Then comes the He of verse 15. Jesus comes to the cross. And do you see how the cross is the answer to how a holy God can remain holy and yet bless sinners? In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, just rejoice as you hear me read this to you. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul says no longer can Satan take that record of legal debt before God and accuse us before Him. No longer can Satan make the case that God is unjust to save us. For at the cross, God's justice was satisfied as Jesus bore the hell our sins deserved for us. Oh, friends, Satan was greatly involved in the death of Jesus. Throughout the Scriptures, we read of people being possessed by demons, but only once do we read of a man being inhabited by Satan himself, and that man was Judas, sent out to betray the Lord. Satan used envy to stir up the religious leaders so that they would not rest until Jesus was dead. Behind Pilate, behind the Roman soldiers, behind the Jewish crowd crying out, crucify him, is Satan. Satan has not only torn God's special creation, humanity, away from him, but now he intends to kill God's very son. Here is Satan's great moment of victory. And then, when Jesus was near dead and victory was in Satan's grasp, something happened that I can only think he must not have expected. Did God the Father send a million angels to rescue his son? No. God the Father forsook his son and unleashed on his son the judgment deserved by every sin ever committed by any person who will ever trust God. Christ bore it all. 
And in that moment, the death which Satan had worked so hard to orchestrate was now seen not to have been orchestrated by him at all, but by God himself and by Jesus Christ, who died willingly, not as a victim, but as a voluntary substitute. In other words, in this moment, Satan realizes he had been nothing but a pawn. His victory was no victory at all, but Christ's victory over him. For now Satan has no weapon which he can use to do any eternal harm to a child of God. Did you hear me, church? Satan, because of Christ's death, has no weapon which he can use to do any eternal harm to a child of God, nor any eternal harm to the Son of God, nor any eternal harm to the glory of God. Satan's purposes were thwarted, his power broken, and his fate sealed. At the cross, Satan is seen for what he is, a wretched worm who ultimately has done nothing to disrupt the plans of God, but has only played right into them. Not only that, but the role that Satan has played has only served to show more of God's glory and to increase our joy in Jesus. God's wisdom is revealed. Our salvation is secured. Christ's name is lifted up as the name that will be worshipped forevermore and throughout eternity. And it all happened because of Satan. He played right into it. When Jesus died and bore our condemnation for us, He simultaneously destroyed Satan's ability to accuse you before Almighty God. And thus, he destroyed Satan's ability to do any lasting harm to you. So let me close. For a time, and ultimately for your sanctification, for your good, for your benefit, Satan is allowed to attack us with temporal weapons, as God allows. And some of the temporal harm that Satan can bring against us is very painful and will test us mightily. But eternally, we are secure. Friends, if we are in Jesus Christ, not only our sins, not only are our sins not held against us, but we have gained victory over our greatest enemy, and we will rest secure forever while he receives the destruction he worked so hard for you and I to have. How do we respond as we go to the Lord's table? Two words. Love Christ. He is our victor. He is the one who freed us from the legal debt of our sins and from Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is our prince in shining armor who comes riding in on a white horse and saves his bride from the dragon that held her captive and had plans for her destruction. By Christ we are set free. By Christ no weapon formed against us will prosper. Oh, friends, as we take the Lord's Supper together, love Christ. Amen.